And the thing I'm most interested in is to see how diverse planetary systems are, because this looks nothing like what we would expect based on our own solar system. So is it our own solar system that's unusual, or is this the unusual case? We don't know. It's true that planets form out of disks of gas and dust around young stars, but those disks dissipate in five or 10 million years. And so a star zone as Fomaha, which is about 500 million years old, you don't expect any of that to be left. So this, this is dust that has to form from a totally different process. were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, You just heard astronomers Skylar Wolf and George Reiki describing the unexpected surprises they found around the 25 light year distant star Fomalhaut. Thank you to astronomer Christian Reddy, who hosts the YouTube channel Launchpad Astronomy, for graciously allowing Good Heavens to use the clips from his interview. A link to Christian's excellent video about Fomalhaut will be in the notes of this episode. Known in ancient Persia as one of the four royal stars, the brilliant blue-white light of Falmelhout shines in the relative darkness along the southern horizon. It is the 18th brightest star in the sky and is believed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 to 500 million years old. In her book, The Friendly Stars, Martha E. Martin suggests Falmelhout glimmers with tinctures of sorrow. She writes, quote, On early acquaintance, the loneliness of this star added to the somber signs of approaching autumn, sometimes giving one a touch of melancholy." Quote. There are few visible stars in the vicinity of Fomalhaut which makes it appear as the loneliest star. It is relatively easy to spot if you know where and when to look. But Fomalhaut really isn't alone. It shines in its own unique God-given glory as it is part of a trinary star system. That is, there are two other stars, not visible to the naked eye, which orbit around one another as they orbit around Falmelhout. Doctors Wolf and Reiki, along with team leader Dr. Andras Gaspar, recently trained the James Webb Space Telescope's mid-infrared instrument on Falmelhout, and what they found quite literally made headlines. The discovery of a bright disk surrounding the star, as well as a faint intermediate ring surrounding the disk, stunned astronomers, as the objects discovered by Webb were not even remotely hinted at in previous telescope observations made over the past decade. Perhaps a more fundamentally amazing aspect of this discovery is one that is often overlooked. Namely, that we can even make discoveries in the cosmos in the first place. Biologist Michael Denton observes that, quote, What is so striking is that our cosmos appears to be not just supremely fit for our being and for our biological adaptations, but also for our understanding. Our watery planetary home with its oxygen-containing environment, the abundance of trees and hence wood and hence fire, is wonderfully fit to assist us in the task of opening nature's door. Moreover, being on the surface of a planet rather than its interior or in the ocean gives us the privilege to gaze further into the night to distant galaxies and gain knowledge of the overall structure of the cosmos. Were we positioned in the center of a galaxy, we would never look on the beauty of a spiral galaxy, nor would we have any idea of the structure of our universe. We might never have seen a supernova or understood the mysterious connection between the stars 
and our own existence. End quote. Our connection to the stars is an ancient and meaningful one. Gazing up at the night sky causes us to reflect on life's biggest questions. What does this all mean? Who am I? Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? As King David pondered long ago, when I consider thy heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? The prophet Isaiah describes our Messiah and Savior as a man of sorrows. It is truly remarkable to consider that the Lord and Maker of the heavens and earth came to us as one of us and bore our sins and our sorrows on the cross. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I peer into the fantastical discovery of Fommelhout's disc and inner ring, not just from a scientific perspective, but how we think it points to our specialness in the cosmos as divine image bearers, and ultimately to the glory of God in Christ. Come and see. Good heavens, Wayne. Here we are at the end of May. Sorry to everybody that we haven't put out more good heavens this month, but it's been kind of crazy. Uh, but we do have an episode that I think uh, uh, you're going to enjoy. Welcome back, Wayne. Nice to chat with you again. Howdy, Dan. It's good to be back in good heavens. Yes. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, another James Webb Space Telescope discovery. And uh, this one's pretty cool. Um, because yeah, and it's it, kind of a controversy a little bit between scientists. It gets, gets makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. So always in astronomy, it's the the phrase "viva la resolution." Yes, <laughs> because <laughs> the the harder it is, you want more and more resolution. So um, you know, every time we see an image like what we're going to talk about today, astronomers are like, oh, we need better resolution." You know, and so um, I, I hear they're building a, a bigger telescope than Webb. Or at least it's in the planning stage. It's called the Carl Sagan. Uh, so that's that's coming up. I don't know if we'll see that in our lifetimes, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, we we're going to talk about a star that um, you can see here in the northern hemisphere, though it is a a star in the southern hemisphere. It's low in our horizon here in Texas, uh, and it comes up uh, right now in this season that we're in, late May, early June. It comes up uh, before dawn, three four o'clock in the morning. And then it's uh, it's it's in the lower southern horizon. If you're in a uh, big city, you're not going to see this one. Um, if you're near light pollution near the horizon, uh, you're not going to see this star. You've got to get out in a dark sky and get kind of high up to uh, to see it. But it's called Fom Al Hau or Fom Al Hout. I hear uh, people pronouncing Fom Al Hout. Fom Al Hout. Fom Al Hout. Fom Al Hout. Basically, it's three words. Uh, fom, al, and hot or hal. It means mouth of the fish. That's what it means. Mouth of the fish. I didn't know it meant that. Mouth of the fish, and it's in the uh, southern constellation of Piscinus Australis. Uh, yeah. It's uh, if you can see it. And I can see it here in Poolville. Um, we can see it from the backyard. I gotta really? get out away from uh uh-huh, out away from the trees. Um, but it is uh, uh, in the southern horizon. Um, I'm going to get up tomorrow and try to find it. But uh, it's in a, if you can see it, even in a dark sky, it appears to be a star that is all by its lonesome. It doesn't look like it's surrounded by any stars. Um, but this star was the target of the Hubble Space Telescope back in the uh, early 2000s and then uh, was the target uh, most recently of the James Webb. And astronomers just released their imaging of this star at the beginning of May. And, uh, Wayne, it looks like uh, a Frisbee. It's a pretty cool thing. What's going on with uh, Falmohout? Why are so, we talking about Falmohout? What's going well, on? Well, uh, there's another, some other interesting things about it. This is actually part of a trinary star system. There a trinary. Are th- there are three stars in this system. 
Now, formaldehyde, what's usually called formaldehyde is what what scientists would call formaldehyde A, or capital A. Mm-hmm. If they use a capital letter after the star name, that is referring to a star. But if they use a lowercase letter after the name, then that's referring to an exoplanet. Gotcha. So formaldehyde A is the bigger one and the brighter one that we see. And it's about 25 light years from Earth, so it's a pretty nearby star and a pretty bright star. Uh, Fomalhaut B, capital B, is about uh, 0.9 light years away from A. (laughs) And it's called T.W. Pisces Austrini. And then there's a Fomalhaut C, capital C, um, about two and a half light years away. So you have two stars that are not too far apart, and they orbit each other. Other, And then around their center of gravity, there you have a third star. That's pretty cool. And Fomalhaut A has a big, big dust disk, which is what we've been yes. seeing, okay? Fomalhaut C also has a debris disk around it and it's kind of mm-hmm. unusual to have two debris disks and one multiple star that is fascinating truly fascinating now to uh some more of the mechanics of this star you said it was uh, relatively close um to us 25 light years away it's a hot blue white star too so it's only believed to be about four or five hundred million years old Yes. And uh, uh, so these these kind of stars only last, allegedly, according to current Big Bang models, uh, hot white blue stars only have a, a lifespan of about 800 million to a billion years because they, uh, they're like SUVs. They get really bad gas mileage. That's what Yeah, they are, they are burning through their hydrogen very rapidly. Right. Now, that's just a model. Wayne and I have different perspectives, or we have the same perspective that's a little different than current ideas there's nothing that says yes that that these stars weren't created at the beginning like everything else but because of how big bang models suggest the universe and then stars develop and uh the 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 models about how what a star lifetime is um the way that these hot white blue stars burn um they they say well it can't conceivably have been around for 13.7 billion or however long stars have been forming um, the other thing is, is that just to tell you how hot and bright it is, it's 16 times the brightness of our own sun. So that's um, uh, it's burning a lot of fuel. It's burning hot. It's burning very brightly. But the fascinating thing, and just this morning I sent you that video, um, and uh, I, the fascinating thing I found out today was one of the chief astronomers who imaged the disks that we're going to be talking about around Falmelhot A uh, said that um, in uh, – the way stars form that he thinks he says that in about five to 10 million years after the birth of a star, usually uh, this debris uh, disc uh, structure is cleared out. I mean, there's still remnants of it, but he said within five to 10 million years, you wouldn't, after a star has been born, you wouldn't expect to see this much debris around the star. So that was an unexpected uh, discovery what James Webb has found was was uh, a disk close to the star, then a faint, then a space between that and another faint inner ring, and then a space between that and a faint outer ring. But the outer ring wasn't so faint. But there are three very distinct uh, structures around this star, which is uh, and a lot of unexpected surprises as well. Right, and so this I. To understand what they're saying uh, takes a little explanation. So they will sometimes talk about what they call a protoplanetary disk, and then sometimes they'll use the term debris disk. These do not mean the same thing. And a protoplanetary disk is what they believe that planets would form from. So um, the idea is that you you end up with a, a disk of gas and dust, both gas and dust, early on, and the star for, forms first. And then, so a lot of the hydrogen gas in this disk gets sucked into the star. But 
the the gas in there in addition to the dust they think is important for planets to form so you especially if you have gaseous plants they need they need gas <laughs> all right so um and then what they think is that after the planets form if there are planets um the gas dissipates away or it falls into the the planets or the star so the mm-hmm. gas doesn't last forever and that's the five or ten million years that you were talking about mm-hmm. that's how long it takes for the gas to dissipate or fall into the something right right <laughs> then after so that's how the system would become kind of semi-clear or transparent a little bit perhaps because mm-hmm. the gas gets cleared away now there could still be dust and there could still be small objects right but right. but uh what they think is that in a big disc like at Fomalhaut, uh there would have been a collisions maybe a big collision to create a, such a big disc and because there are multiple rings at Fomalhaut, they think something is probably this probably some solid objects there that's kind of pulling material out of those those uh, thin zones where the it's kind mm-hmm. of a break in the rings. Mm-hmm. Something has to cause those gaps. Yes. And and they so they think that the the uh, protoplanetary disk is like early before the planet forms and then and the debris disk is later after planets and asteroids may have formed but they've collided and they and when the gas is gone what that happens is the objects are believed to collide together uh harder than with in the, when the gas is present so the the objects break each other to pieces and that generates all the dust so now that's that's their their theory that's their story um mm-hmm. i think it could have just been created this way but we don't know i don't know if they will eventually see evidence, more evidence of planets there or not and i don't mean to take sides on that there's some so the the scientists who originally reported uh Fomalhaut B the exoplanet still thinks it must be there somewhere it's just hidden in the dust in the in the ring when you say exoplanet you're talking about as you said just a minute ago um about uh what 2008 2000 between 2000 yeah or 15 was, years ago it was 2008 but, when they reported it originally with the hubble hubble space telescope picture they saw a very bright dot I think yeah. it's in the very far outer ring that that was known to have existed, and uh, but over time Hubble tracked this, and I think they tracked it on the ground with the uh, Atacama Large Millimeter Array as well in uh, Chile, um, a couple of different telescopes, uh, and they saw this dust, bright dust spot, uh, dissipating over time and actually leaving the ring configuration. Its orbital pattern seemed to have been uh, ejected from the outer ring and so they concluded that as you just said maybe a a large collision that created a lot of dust was primarily responsible and it's no longer believed uh that Fomalhaut lowercase b the exoplanet actually uh exists but um yeah so if you know Fomalhaut is a big it's a huge disc it's the disk goes way, way out, far beyond where our Pluto would be in our system. I have on my uh, my blog that I write, my personal blog. I did a, I did a, a written article, which we'll link in the description, uh, about Fomalhaut, and uh, the you just had mentioned the ring system, how large it is, and according to the article that you sent me uh, about the discovery, Wayne, the ring system extends 14 billion miles out from the star, as you just correctly said, 150 times more distant than the Earth is from the sun. Yeah. That is an incredible 
ring system. That just shows you the magnitude of the distance. And quickly before we go on, Wayne, I wanted to mention a scripture. I know you have a scripture as well, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I was reading uh, the, the the verse that came to mind as I'm looking at these pictures and reading these articles is the Apostle Paul's attestation of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's talking about different bodies. Um, God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. <laughs> this is yeah. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-eight, um, and then for verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Yes. But the glory of heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Yes. So whatever the science is going on here is the Apostle Paul here, being an ancient astronomer, he gets it exactly right, that every star has its own unique glory. And so, like you just said a minute ago, uh, we don't know if God created it as we see it or ha- there has been a multitude of changes ever since God has created. We're not sure. Um, but the star differs from star and glory. Another astronomer who was on that same video that I, that, uh, I shared with you, I wanted to mention this too. She made a, a wonderful point and she said, makes you, makes you kind of dizzy. It's, it's kind of a wonderful thing. She said, astronomers don't know is is Falmelhout a normal way in which protoplanetary disks and debris fields develop around a star? Or is our solar system the normative way of which stars develop and produce planets? She said, we don't know. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Is, is Falmelhout unique? Or So they're looking at other stars close by Falmelhout. Uh, I think that the data is either going to be released this summer or they're going to be starting the project this summer. But they're looking at, uh, I believe they're looking at uh, Altair and a star in Eridanus. Um, But they're going to find more unique features, I think, that just because of what the Apostle Paul says, every star is going to be different from every other star. And uh, it is a reflection of God's glory, whatever is going on there. Um, Yeah, I tend to to think that our solar system is kind of special. It's not uh, run-of-the-mill. And yeah, I think that's right. That's mostly what's what we found from the study of exoplanets. Right, that uh, the more exoplanet systems that uh, have been discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope in, since 2009, I think, uh, the more unique our solar system seems to appear with all these other ones that that seem we say well they're strange and they're exceptions. Well, no, it seems like it seems like we're exceptions because uh, we we've done a couple of shows where we've at least mentioned. That in many of these exoplanet systems, Wayne, what's closer to the parent star are the gas giants, and on at the further out you go, then you find these these rocky planets, which is exactly the inverse of what our solar system is, and that was not expected. Um, and so, but let's talk about a little bit, Wayne, um, about the the idea of planets. You mentioned them; these rings may exist because there is a planet that is there, sort of shepherding or clearing out. Uh, the ring system and what we know from Saturn's rings. There are shepherd moons within the ring system of Saturn that sort of yes. uh, gather, if you will, debris and uh, make these spaces in the ring. So it's possible possible that there might be a planet or two around Falmouth, right? Yes, and we know that Jupiter uh, tends to clear out certain areas right. in the asteroid belt. Right. And uh, Neptune has an influence on objects uh, out beyond Neptune, the trans-Neptunian objects. Um, so they're kind of expecting to f- to have evidence of asteroids, but asteroids can't really be seen in an infrared telescope, Dan. So right. Th- it, it's kind of the opposite of the way we think. Infrared sees... Uh, objects of a certain size that's close to the wavelength of what they tune it to. Mm-hmm. And um, so the James Webb Telescope has three different frequencies of light that it looks at in infrared. And so that's really kind of zeroing in on cert- uh, three different sizes of dust particles. 
So the okay. dust, the dust is bright to infrared, essentially. But mm-hmm. something like an asteroid or a planet would be uh, dark and faint to infrared. Because it's not, uh, so it's not within the measurement scale of the wavelength of light to which the telescope is tuned. Yes, and because um, you're you're tuning into a certain narrow range of frequencies of light, and mm-hmm. you don't see the other the rest of the light very well. So right, what they but see since Fomalot is a nearby star, there have been other kinds of studies of it, uh-huh. and but now what we have is much more sensitive information from the James Webb in infrared. And if we only had, in, you know, other kinds of images that were as sensitive as that, we can, we might learn more. But So for in 2008, with the Hubble Space Telescope, they saw something move in this disk from 2004 to 2006. The Hubble Space Telescope saw something move, and they they figured that was a planet. So that's when they started talking about uh, Fomalhaut, Little B. Little B. (laughs) Little B. (laughs) We'll just call him Little B now. (laughs) Yes. And then, uh, so there were other observations, and even up to 2012 or 2013, they were still uh, believing that it was an exoplanet. And as they continued to see it now and then but then i think it was 2014 or 2015 i don't remember exactly they it it seemed like it was kind of getting uh larger but fainter and its trajectory was kind of veering off in a direction they didn't expect Mm. and so that's when it it makes it seem like it's something else And, and now it seems to have disappeared so if you had, uh, say, an asteroid object that was icy and it collided with another asteroid, it would kick up dust, but it would also have a lot of ice that would come off of it, right? Gotcha, yeah. If there was ice out there. So if you get far enough from the star, it, it starts getting cold in this disk. If you're closer to the star, then it's warmer. But so if it's out in the cold area and you have a collision, all the ice that gets kicked up can be bright and it can make it um, look like a bright spot in the disk. So mm. that's what they think happened, and I think that's very likely. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to mention that the uh, we've been talking here briefly about the protoplanetary disk. Uh, in a star formation cloud um, that that from which the planets are born. Wayne, did you know that the foundation of this protoplanetary disk idea began in the late 1700s when you had Immanuel Kant and Pierre-Simon Laplace? Now, Laplace is famous for saying, you know, uh, when Napoleon asked him, uh, what about God in your cosmological theory and Laplace says I have no need of that hypothesis I have no need of that hypothesis right and then Immanuel Kant was a philosopher he also postulated that galaxies were island universes so these two men came up with independently I believe uh, this this protoplanetary disk theory and it basically a cloud of gas that rotates around a center of gravity um, flattens out as it spins and then as it's spinning, as you described, uh, from this, within this protoplanetary disk of gas and dust is the raw material from which planets coalesce and form around the parent star and then eventually clear out the gas. It all subsumes and gets absorbed over the next five to ten million years. But I thought it fascinating, though, of course, we've had advances in our astronomical knowledge of how these things happen, but Wayne... The truth be told, there is no fundamental empirical evidence uh, of a collapsing gas cloud creating a star and then creating planets. It's all sort of uh, similar, not 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 exactly similar, but uh, quite similar to a, an evolution an evolutionary explanation of how life developed. 
um, once you have life, then you can do all kinds of things. So the theory goes. Uh, evolution doesn't deal with the origin of life. It just deals with how life developed. So the, the problem with star formation theory, as you know, is the protoplanetary disk idea of a, of a gas cloud collapsing on itself to create a star and then subsequent planets is highly fraught with problems in and of themselves. Um, and I just found it fascinating that uh, the, the basic concept of this hasn't changed in, uh, since Kant and Laplace. This is just, it seems, Wayne, that uh, Fommelhout is kind of, and of course, when your technology improves, you know, I, I wonder aloud, will we keep this, uh, you know, maybe 200-year-old theory uh, in light of what the James Webb is continually discovering? It seems like we might have to, Fommelhout is at least suggesting that maybe we should update this theory to some degree, right? Uh, that that it's possible that um, uh, there's something else going on here, that we just, a mechanism that uh, eludes science uh, that well, we just there, don't know. There is a lot of uh, mathematical uh, computer simulation work that's been done that Laplace never, of never course. was able to do, of course. Correct. Uh, but the problem with computer simulations is you never can be sure that what you're simulating represented the real thing that happened way back when. Right. You have to have the input of the software developers who create the program. So in some sense, these programs are front-loaded uh, with certain mathematical assumptions to begin with. You need certain mathematical equations and certain mathematical structures at the outset of your program in order for the program to build on. Yes, and... and, and and when they simulate a planet's forming in a in a protoplanetary disk, as they call it, um, they start with already uh, sizable objects. They don't start with just dust particles and, and gas. They start with uh, the, a mixture of dust and gas, and then there are some um, asteroid kind of objects, but there's also usually other objects that are bigger, a handful of larger objects that they usually call planet embryos. And th those would be something on the order of two or 3,000 or 4,000 kilometers in diameter. Mm. I want to, uh, I want to, I waited to surprise you. I was going to tell you this, but I thought I'd do it on the broadcast here. I went ahead, uh, since we've quoted him, he's become our resident, uh, Resident astronomer from Cornell from 1973. I went ahead and bought the book. Oh, you Martin, did, you Martin Harwitz. Yeah, the 1973 version <laughs> of uh, uh, astrophysical concepts. There's like four four versions of it, but I wanted to get the oldest one. Uh. And uh, I didn't know uh, Harwitz was a, an astronomer at Cornell, and he was probably there. I imagine he was at Cornell when Carl Sagan was there. Uh, I, I imagine they knew each other. I'm sure, but could uh, be. But Mark, Martin Harwood was not. He, he was a uh, he was a solid scientific astrophysicist um, in his field. And as I was preparing for this podcast, I want to bring up uh, something that uh, Dr. Harwood said uh, that we have we have quoted many times. But I wanted to quote it at length because I feel like this fits what we're talking about today about stars and dust clouds and planets. Uh, Harwood says, "Quote the association the association of dust clouds with recently formed stars." is not absolute proof that stars form from these clouds. Some causal relation presumably exists, but is it impossible that stars just form out of nothing at all and that a lot of dust gets raised in the process? Such a picture, while unsatisfying because it postulates an apparently unphysical origin, after all, at least avoids the angular momentum and magnetic field difficulties. Now, that's related to the spinning of clouds and gas and dust. Yes. And then he ends this. He says, we should keep this important point in mind. Perhaps stars do form out of nothing! Exclamation point. For the moment, however, we prefer to work as far as we are able within the framework of ordinary physics. But that's Martin Harwood in 1973. Stars out of yeah. nothing. So long before uh, Lawrence Krauss and the universe from nothing, we had Martin Harwood proposing stars out of nothing. But Harwood says, it's almost like he's saying it would be much easier if we could just say stars form out of nothing. 
than to uh, to try to work through all the difficulties that come with a rotating gas cloud and the magnetics and the angular mo- angular momentum uh, that are all involved in creating stars and planets from these things. So uh, fascinating stuff, though. Yes, I, I've read a lot about these things. I've read many technical papers on these theories. Mm-hmm. So they there's a number of things that tend to dissipate the gas and dust, the the, the collisions usually break objects apart they don't usually stick together and even if they do some of the time that doesn't really explain very much no no because it's uncommon very uncommon right right it's not like uh grass growing every summer where you got to mow well we can tell why the grass is coming up every summer this this protoplanetary disk idea as many planets and stars as we believe that are out there this unique process would have had to happen over and over and over again and it boggles the mind when you see the scale of not only the stars but uh now that we've discovered uh, four or five thousand exoplanets in the last 10 15 years um it's mind-boggling to think this this process was all happenstance and uh i'm reminded of uh, the prophet isaiah's words in isaiah forty twenty six: lift up your eyes on high and see who not what but who has created these stars and um, speaking of fish, Wayne, this this is a. It kind of reminded me of. Uh, you remember at the end of John's Gospel, what were the disciples? The, the disciples had given up and gone back to fishing, and uh, they had yeah. to, they had toiled all night, and uh, they didn't catch any fish. And Jesus comes to them. He's on the beach, and he's. I love what he says. He says, "Children, you do not have any fish, do you?" <laughs> I love it. You know, it's like he exacerbates their frustration a little bit, but he's very, it's very encouraging and it's very chiding in some sense too. It's like, you guys haven't caught any fish, have you? Uh, you know, and they know it's the Lord, yeah. but, but I think in some sense, Wayne, you know, this all reminded me of the fish, fish in the Bible that, that Jesus could come to astrophysicists and say, children, you do not have any good theories, do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've toiled for decades, uh, yes, and they haven't caught anything. And uh, I just can't help but wonder that that the more James Webb uncovers, uh, the more we're going to have Harwit-like commentary about how all this stuff came to be, because it's just shattering our concepts about how long, slow, gradual formation of stars and planets could possibly have been. And now we just did that episode on galaxies and where did they come from and how did they form so early. Um, you know, you can't have your James Webb Space Telescope and your old theories, too. <laughs> it's just not going to work yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just that uh, now science explains a lot about what happens now that we can observe. Absolutely. When you're trying to explains some how something formed in a one-time event in the past science doesn't work so well in dealing with something like that so in first origins of something and how the universe came about and how planets came about this is not something science has really done well with right and we have a lot of a lot of scientists would disagree with me on that but i sure that they skip over certain parts of the problem that they can't simulate in computer right and when you read a a popular book on the topic um you realize you kind of you kind of get the impression they've solved all these mysteries oh look here's a little cloud of dust hubble caught this this is how stars form they spin they do all this and blah 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 and that's the next page right um, but in Scripture, it's interesting, too, because David says in Psalm 8.3, he says, The moon and the stars that thou hast ordained the work of thy fingers. And then in Psalm 33.6, we read that the, the, uh, uh, the heavens were made and the stars were made by the breath of his mouth, the word of his mouth. And so there's this poetic reference to that, that veils the mechanism by which God creates these things. David says fingers, and then the Psalm 33 says by the breath of his mouth, by the declaration of his mouth, by the word. Uh, in Genesis, it says God created the stars. Also, he doesn't tell us the mechanism. And and as you say, science is perfectly suited to uncover the mechanism of star formation but or planet formation. But it, there's, it's, it's a great mystery in, in, in truth that just like the origin of life, where did that come from? So science can talk a lot about the technicalities of how stars might have formed or how planets might have formed, 
But there's no solid, conclusive, empirical evidence in place that has solved all the mysteries about star or planet or even galaxy formation. Yeah, so I think Scripture emphasizes God's authority and his creative words. We, God can command things into existence. That's amazing. Uh, now, it, it doesn't emphasize the process too much. In Genesis 1, it gives us something uh, about the time frame. Right, and I don't think I don't think it's consistent with an old age from the Bible. I think I would agree. It has God creating things quickly, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and uh, so it. Now that's an unscientific answer, if you want, in a sense. But I think it's logical because natural processes are in, in, inadequate, and uh, uh, God. If you can believe in the God of the Bible, he can do it. Well, it's, uh, I like, now we say, well, what does all this science of the heavens have to do with us? Um, I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For it is God who said, or for God who said, let uh, light shall shine out of darkness. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, it's interesting here because Paul is referring to the famous phrase in Genesis, let there be light. And that same God who spoke light into existence, who spoke stars into existence, who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence, is the same one who speaks light into our life to give us light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so there's another reference here to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament or the sky or the expanse uh, shows forth his handiwork. And so God speaks to our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ as the glory of God. And so the stars are a precursor to understanding uh, maybe even a parable because Jesus in, in Mark 4, he's like, what, what should we compare the kingdom of the heavens to? What, what would be a good parable? What's a good analogy? What's a good comparison? What can we do? Of course, he compared it to seeds, um, tiny seeds, uh, many other things. Um, but uh, but the, the glory that is being declared in the cosmos, the, the, the star differing from star in glory, God's glory is all pointing us to Jesus. And so the God who said, let there be light, speaks to us and speaks to our hearts. Uh, You and I wouldn't have any knowledge of Jesus, Wayne, if God did not say, let there be light in Wayne Spencer, let there be light in Daniel Ray, let there be light in uh, anyone who understands and proclaims Jesus as Lord. Uh, That light of who Christ is did not come from ourselves, um, but came from God who created the cosmos. Right. So the the creator who who made original uh, physical light is also the source of spiritual light for us. Right. And he's the one who makes us able to see it. That's right. That's right. And uh, gives us the knowledge to uh, to appreciate and understand his creation. Psalm 111.2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Now, secular sciences who study the heavens delight in what God is making, even though they don't acknowledge that it is what God made. But when you spend, I, I was just looking at this the other day for a presentation, um, $470 billion uh, are given, are spent uh, in 2021 on space exploration uh, worldwide. I don't know how accurate that is. I got it from the Global Space Economy website. Uh, $470 billion annually in 2021. What does that say? I mean, if you spend $470 billion on something, Wayne, what, what are you saying about the thing that you're studying? It's important. It's absolutely important, and it's a delight to study in these things. If you listen to astronomers who talk about this, they delight in it. They delight in these mysteries. They delight in seeing these things. And, you know, for a scientist who doesn't believe in God, we, we the, the question is always ever before them, What's going? what does this all mean? I mean, why is this? Why am I no. studying a, an eccentric ring system of a distant star? Well, what's the point we, of this? We want to know what it means. We want to know what it means. And every time we train a, a brand new telescope on these objects, the best and most thorough answers that we get, it's all gas and dust. Uh, unusually arranged, but in the end, it's all the behavior of matter and energy. 
They they don't go any any further than that. But the very nature of the beauty, the wonder, and the awe aspect of this that drives astronomy forward can't be explained by the telescope itself. That's the enigma, I think, for secular science. Yeah, but from a biblical point of view, it's it's created for a purpose, and it's supposed to uh, motivate us to want to know about the the one who made it all. And right. he's uh, he's the one that defines our place in the universe. <laughs> he, right. He's the right. one that defines what we're here for and right. what right. life right. should be. Well, and you go back to what uh, what God says to Abraham in Genesis, or Abram at the time, Genesis fifteen five, where he takes Abram outside and he says, uh, you know, look at the stars, count the stars if you're able. Uh, Abram's stargazing with the creator of the universe. How about that? Yeah. And, uh, and Jesus says, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ is who that is. He says, uh, so shall your descendants be, Abram. And now if you think about this, uh, this is amazing because, because uh, and you, you think about what Paul said, what I said about what Paul said a, a little bit ago, star differing from star in glory. Uh, and then the stars being like Abram's descendants. Each one of us, Wayne, has a unique... Um, shape we give off a unique light uh we all have a unique call a unique purpose we are all created individually and given names by god himself uh, we all have a place in the cosmos uh and a, and a purpose in the cosmos and i think a lot of what people struggle with today is a sense of purposelessness what's this all mean you know where where do i fit in in the big scheme of of stars with debris rings and asteroids so what who cares what, what? yeah and then there's the whole sense of uh, a lack of a sense of personal self-worth and value right what is right what and is my life worth and a lot exactly. of young people struggle with that and isaiah 26 uh isn't just talking about stars but i, I want to continue reading that it says lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number he calls them all by name because the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And then the next verse in Isaiah, the very next verse, is an encouragement to Jacob or Israel. Um, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, you know, a lot of times we can think of that in terms of purpose and and purposelessness and directionlessness. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And I think that's critically important because I think what's happening in this passage is that Jacob thinks, Israel thinks, God has forgotten them. In waiting on the Lord, which might seem like a long time for something to happen, when we wait on the Lord, uh, let us not think that we are outside of the Lord's jurisdiction or knowledge or observation, because sometimes when we know it takes years and years and years and years for God to answer a prayer, uh, but then he does, and he starts answering prayers, and you're like, wow, and you appreciate them, and you can see them more because you've been praying for something so specifically. So waiting on the Lord, uh, we're, we're told to look up at the stars. You think uh, you've been forgotten? Look up at the stars and know that I count them and number them and know them all by name, and I know you too, right? And um, and there's another psalm that is tied directly to this that Charlie Duke read with me. Remember when I interviewed Charlie Duke last year, last summer? He read from Psalm. We, it was so cool. It was his idea, but he, we just started reading from some of his favorite scriptures. Uh, and I was like, I'm having a Bible study with Charlie Duke. This is so cool. <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah. yeah, and he read from Psalm 147, and I think it fits into what we're talking about here. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then the next verse, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. So right juxtaposed next to each other is God healing and binding up the wounds of the brokenhearted and counting the number of the stars. So one thing that I think, at least for me personally, that we can derive from um, 
knowing more about and becoming more intimately acquainted with the beauty in the heavens is uh, deriving encouragement that God knows where we are, uh, that he will uh, kind of a, a, a reminder that God knows where we are, cares for us, and uh, knows us, and in due time will, will answer us. Um, but until then, as we wait, uh, go stargazing and be reminded of God's greatness and goodness and glory. Yes. Um, there's an interesting uh, Old Testament story that has some pertinence to this. It's kind of an ironic connection between the Old Testament. Yeah, that's funny. Let's. I'm glad you reminded me to talk about that. Let's talk about that. It's funny. Fomalot, little b, exoplanet, uh, came to be called Dagon. So I thought that was interesting because this goes back to as a reference to uh, an Old Testament story uh, in First Samuel chapter five. So the story is. The Dagon was a, a god that was worshipped by the Philistines, and Israel was at war with the Philistines. So this was uh, at the time that Samuel was a a prophet, and he Samuel was growing up, and may not have been an adult yet at the time these things happened. I'm not sure, but so they had a ba- battle with the Philistines, where they they brought the ark of God with them in the battle because they thought that would give them victory. And, but they weren't really being led correctly. The, the priest named Eli hadn't really followed, uh, God's requirements correctly. And, uh, other things were happening in the, with the, the leaders of the nation that weren't really doing the right thing. So, they were kind of on the wrong track, but they went to war with the Philistines, and the Philistines gave them a real hammering. The, the Philistines beat them, and the Israelites lost 30,000 soldiers in this one battle. I want to mention this before you go on to tell the story. Just before in First Samuel 4, this is a critical thing, I think, for especially related to what we're talking about. Um, you remember when uh, Eli, who was 98 years old, uh, heard and found the news uh, that the the ark was captured. Yes, um, there's a uh, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant at the time. It was about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died. So Phineas dies. Eli dies. He falls. falls Eli falls backward in his seat and breaks his neck when the news is told to him that the ark was taken. Yes. At, and then uh, Eli's uh, uh, daughter-in-law dies, Phineas's wife. Uh, well, she doesn't die. She gives uh, birth and calls her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. So we're talking about glory, and I, I can't help but wonder, Wayne, to some degree, how what happens when the glory of God Departs. Of course, God's glory permeates the heavens and the earth. But when we are cut off from God's glory, um, like with light pollution or giving explanations about the cosmos that don't take into consideration who God is, what he's done, and what these what the universe represents, we are cutting people off from the glory of God when we when when people do this. We can't see them. Uh, scientists tells us it's just gas and dust, um, and that a lot of astronomers on the popular level, especially Carl Sagan, would, would emphasize that, that, that look at how small we are. We must be insignificant. Uh, the universe wants to kill us, this kind of thing. Um, the glory indeed has departed from a lot of people's minds, and they are despairing. Um, so just a side note there. Um, so uh, continue with what happened to Dagon. This is fascinating. Well, yeah, the story I think uh, kind of is is condemning both sides. The Israelites yes. were the Israelites were wrong in their attitude toward God, though they were believing Absolutely. God and they they thought they were doing his will, but they were really not. And so the Philistines didn't they didn't really follow the Israelite God, of course. They had the, their God was Dagon. But the Philistines knew enough to know that when they had the ark of God with them, the Israelites, 
the Philistines were afraid of that because they had that ark with them, because they had heard the stories of what had happened years earlier when, when the Israelites were had the ark of God and there were miracles that were done in defeating other other uh, nations, other peoples. So the Philistines knew enough to be afraid of this ark of God. They defeat the Israelites, and then they take the ark. So the, chapter 5 of 1 Samuel tells of what they did with the ark of God. They took it back to their temple, the temple of Dagon, and in uh, Ashdod, and so it says when they when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they so they set it they set the statue of Dagon back up, okay, and they, so they probably figure, oh well, that's weird. Let's let's just go on. <laughs> so then they. Uh, Coincidence. <laughs> so, but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So he fell down again, and it says his head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. So not mm. only did it fall again, but it broke, uh, broke it to pieces. So this is what the glory of God does with false models of the cosmos, false idols. Yes, the the Philistines started getting these sores of some sort, and so they realized they had to get rid of this ark, that they weren't supposed to have this, so they uh, sent it back to the Israelites. So both the Israelites and the Philistines got the point that they needed to take God seriously. And it's just kind of the idea of God having the last word. It's that... That the the Philistines' uh, reasoning was humbled. They they ended up being wrong about the God of the Israelites. Even though the Israelites were not perfect, the the God of the of the Israelites was the real God, and He was really uh, making the Philistines pay for what they had done in a sense. So, and I think it's a a remarkable uh, reminder that uh, as the story is in the Old Testament, that nobody seeks after God. Nobody seeks God's glory. Nobody gets it right. Nobody can live by the law, uh, whether we're believers or unbelievers. We mishandle and misunderstand and uh, misconstrue what the glory of God is. But I think uh, an application maybe for uh, for scientific models of the cosmos that take no thought of God, um, that the glory of God will prevail. There's another aspect of this, Dan. Okay, it's in chapter 6, First Samuel says, the ark had been in the Philistine territory for seven months. So they started, they talked to their priests and their diviners and their pe- knowledgeable people. And said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? And uh, so then what, they decided to send it back to Israel, but they they decided they should s- send uh, some sort of guilt offering with it. So they... <laughs> They felt they had to pay for their sin in some sense there. Yes. Yeah. And they they made, uh, what was it, golden tumors. Um, kind of the, they made, they made whatever their sores were, I think it's what it was. Oh, they, yes. They, they made, they fashioned them into sort of these gold idols of the sores that they had, thinking that if, if we pay in gold, that, that somehow the, the reparations of, of what we've done will, will make up for our, our misdeeds here. But another misappropriation of the glory of God. You don't make gold tumors to appease the wrath of a holy God. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also gold rats. Right. It seems like the only only beings in this story that, that, that don't get hammered by God's wrath are the cows that carry this back to Israel in the cart. <laughs> or the, the animals that they yoked to, to carry the ark back. But I think, uh, you know, Wayne, isn't it interesting that God will finally have the final say about what the cosmos is all about? Uh, now, so the the irony is that uh, this Fomalot B uh, seemed to be a planet, seemed to be able to follow it for a number of years, and then it seemed to disappear. So uh, Dagon turned out to not be a real planet, is what it appears to be. And Just like uh, Dagon's not a real god. Yeah, uh, Dagon's <laughs> not a real god. So, right. Now, I'm not trying to... Uh, uh, make any spiritual point about the scientists in this, okay? You know, sure, there's no. nothing no, no, no. wrong with the scientists uh, 
doing what they're doing and looking for an exoplanet and and um there's nothing wrong with some controversy uh, between scientists who have different opinions. Good, good robust discussion. Science, yeah. science does this. You know, we have to, we have to wait and see what what else is discovered. It's just Absolutely. kind of an interesting Absolutely. irony there with the story. I thought. Well, and it makes uh, it makes uh, the uh, scripture in Job come to life, even for believers and non-believers. You know, when Job had his idea of the way the universe ought to be. His friends had an idea about what God is like. Um, you know, and uh, God comes to all of them and has to correct every one of them about their understanding. And he begins with creation. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Um, and uh, I think it's uh, uh, something akin to what you read in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. What did the, what did the disciples say when they first see this man who was blind from birth, Wayne? What did they ask Jesus? Um, you remember blind from birth, John chapter nine, they see uh, this man blind from birth and they ask the Lord who sinned, who this sinned man, this man or his parents. Correct. What is Jesus's answer? Neither, neither this man nor his parents sin, but why is he blind from birth? Jesus tells us what's the reason. God's work would be revealed or something like that. So God's work would be revealed in him. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So a lot of times we, when we suffer physical ailments or a malady or trial or tribulation, sometimes it's not the sin. It's not sin. Sometimes it's just the will of God to display God's glory through a person. So here's here's Jesus's exact words, John 9, 3. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I think that is a apt summation of the book of Job, because what in God's response to Job, what is God talking about? His works, right? He's 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 setting Job straight about his God's works, and then what's Job's response at the end of the book? My ears have heard of you. You know, he was a devout and upright man, and God considered him to be righteous before the whole saga began with Satan. But in the end, Job has to confess. Well, I had heard of you, but now I see you. And I think that's fascinating. I think that's what uh, we all kind of go through, that we've heard of this idea of God. But then when our eyes are open and we see the glory of God as God shines his light in our hearts, then what's the, what's the natural response to a God who enlightens us about who he is? It's repentance. It's turning to him, right? Turning from darkness to his light, not just a physical light, but a spiritual light. And so the disciples have to be corrected. Uh, the man born blind now sees who God is. Um, and, uh, you know, we pray and we hope that the that, that people that study and look at the universe and the cosmos can be enlightened by God himself to see the glory of God and what he has created both in the heavens and on earth and through his word. And that's why we do good heavens, is to hopefully that plant seeds to show people what the glory of God is all about, and to remind ourselves, you know, Wayne, uh, sometimes I feel like a Philistine uh, <laughs> or a disobedient Israelite. I don't handle the glory of God uh, as I ought, as we all ought to. Um, and uh, we all, all, need, repentance isn't just something that you do before you get baptized. It's something that you do regularly. You turn to God, turn to his word, and try to understand what it is he's, he's doing in your life. Um, and, uh, and wait upon the Lord too, is what uh, Isaiah says. Don't think that God has forsaken you if you're a Christian struggling through a hard time and it seems God has forgotten you. Remember what Isaiah says, uh, as you wait upon the Lord, don't think that he has forgotten you. He knows where you are. He's preparing situations and circumstances for you. Uh, Good works beforehand that you may walk in them, as Ephesians 2.10 says. Yes. So uh, I hope this is a, a good spiritual encouragement to people 
So we're, yeah. We're, uh, our seeking answers should uh, remind us of God. That's right. And, you know, everything that we've said associated with Falmel Hout, um, with all due respect to the scientists that are that are doing this, there are a lot of scientists who use science to denigrate the idea of the existence of God, but there are some scientists that are not hostile to uh, to God's to the question of God's existence or what God might have had to do with it. Um, and we're not saying all scientists are uh, philistines. I'm certainly not saying that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 good science always involves discussion and controversy and further discussion and further observational uh, characteristics and theory making. But in the end, I think that uh, even if whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, God is going to have the final say in Christ for his glory. Um, and the, the heavens are going to pass away with a fervent heat one of these days, Wayne. That's what uh, Peter says. Um, and it will all uh, pass away to reveal the ultimate glory of God in Jesus. Yes. So, Wayne, it's been a great episode, and uh, we'll put links in the description for our audience. Uh, do you have an article, blog article, for this one, Wayne? Uh, Are you going to write one? or We will see. Okay. <laughs> and if it does happen, Wayne, we'll put that in the links of this episode. I have an article that I wrote. Uh, about uh, Fomalhaut and uh, fish and Jesus and how I see it all fitting together. Kind of some stuff we were talking about today. We'll put that in the link of the description and uh, we'll put some links to some pictures and articles for you to explore Fomalhaut on your own. And we do hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Drop us a line if you'd like to uh, at psalm, P-S-A-L-M 1968 at gmail.com. That's psalm. 1968 at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of Wayne or I and maybe a suggestion about a future topic. Uh, we'll be glad to uh, respond. We usually respond to everybody that uh, sends us a note. We appreciate that. Appreciate your support on Podbean and Patreon. And Wayne, we will see you right here next time on Good Heavens. Good Heavens. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on apologetics, cults, world religions, and our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, visit watchman.org.